Hello folks, welcome to another Tuesday Night Book Club recording that we are sharing out a little bit later than usual. Sorry for that, I normally try to get it out a few days after the Tuesday night, but this is the weekend and other stuff going on, but better late than never. It is with Aoife Lennox, who gave a summary of the book Flourish by Dr. Martin Seligman, and it has been well received, as all of them have so far. So I hope you enjoy it. Just a couple of quick ones. We have three more TNBKs lined up with three summaries coming up over the next, I guess that's probably four weeks, and looking forward to them. If you're interested in becoming a summarizer or somebody that would come on and give a summary of a book that has had an impact on you, get in touch with me or, or Deck O'Connell. Um, Rob at robofthegreen.ie is the best way to do that. Love to hear from you. And if there's other ideas you have for Tuesday Night Book Club, let us know. Just another comment. One or two people said the show comes out very raw without any music beforehand. And just interested to see what your thoughts are. It is pretty much just the unedited version of the book club and the conversation that happens afterwards. A little bit different to everything else that comes out on the Robert Green channel. But interested to know if that works or if you have any feedback on how we could improve it. So there you go. Take it away, Aoife. And it starts just a minute or so into the conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks again for listening and getting your free book summary, courtesy of Aoife Lennox this time round. An easier book for myself because it's, I suppose at times it's a little bit psychology heavy, um, even though I'm really interested in it and there's loads of, loads of practical tools. So if you're interested in positive psychology, if you're interested in coaching, um, there's absolutely loads in it. Um, and I suppose I was looking to maybe add some of these tools to my own coaching practice um, and just really deepen my knowledge of positive psychology. So I had read the book about a year ago, um, but like a lot of books, I'd done all my highlighting and my note taking and then I put it nicely back on the shelf and that was the end of that. <laughs> and I couldn't tell you what I actually took from it. So um, I had, I said I'd volunteer for this and set myself a goal and actually properly, you know, sit down and I really had to study it really um, to, to kind of get a good grasp of it. So hopefully I can kind of give you a sort of good overview and perspective of it. So if if you're not familiar, um, Martin Seligman, the author of it, is credited with being, um, I suppose, one of the founding fathers of positive psychology. So he became um, the president of the American Psychological Association back in, I think it was 1998, um, and he wanted a different track for psychology. So he says that psychology before that had been very much um, centered around uh, misery and depression, basically is what he says, and, and everything that's wrong with people. So he wanted to take an alternative approach and really try to start to look at, you know, if we look at what's right with people and right with situations and, and, and um, I suppose, create a new pathway for, for psychology. And that was the beginnings of positive psychology. So he wrote a book in 2002 and it was called Authentic Happiness. Um, but this book is a second, it's kind of a build on to that because he said his understanding of happiness or what makes us happy has, has changed since then. So when he wrote the book in 2002, they looked at um, three different areas that he says could make us happy. And, and they were positive emotion, um, engagement and meaning. 
So how much positive emotion you're feeling in your life, um, how engaged you are in your work, you know, you're really absorbed in your work or, or life or whatever you're doing. Um, and do you feel a purpose and a value in what you're doing? Um, he felt that and, and realized, I suppose, over so between 2002 and 2011, when this book was written, that um, really it was kind of short sighted. It didn't take into account two more important areas. Um, one is relationships and the other is accomplishments. Because he said, if you think about anything good that has ever happened in your life, it's probably you weren't alone. You were probably with people or doing something with people. So he said, having positive relationships in your life is a really, really important component um, of well-being. And I should say that he doesn't like to use the term happiness anymore. It's more well-being, which is a more rounded approach. So, so he starts off the book with that kind of journey, I suppose, from understanding happiness and what it is to well-being theory. And they're the five elements. And he uses the acronym PERMA. So P for positive emotion, E for engagement, R for relationships, N for meaning, and A for accomplishments. And I suppose what I like about having that sort of an acronym to work from is that it, it's, it's broken down into components that he says you can measure each of them. So you can kind of identify for yourself, you know, where are you feeling on a zero to 10 in terms of each of those um, and, and try to, I suppose, build up each of them. Like real, recently, I kind of realized I was like, it was all kind of work focused and everything that was going on. And I just needed a bit more of maybe the, the relationship part of things. So I kind of just reached out to some friends I hadn't talked to. So I think it's a very easy tool for for people and coaches and anybody to 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 work with and and to kind of use as a baseline. Um, so he says that when we can um, increase all of the elements of those or increase each of those, um, then we're flourishing. And that's really um, he says what should be our goal in life to be to be flourishing and and to build up those components of well being. So the first chapter is really covering kind of that growth from happiness theory to well being theory, which is what we what he says we are we're at now. Now I looked up and actually they've added on a H to that perma as well, which he doesn't have in the book, and the H is for health as well. Um, so the second one then is is the second chapter is uh, creating your happiness and positive psychology exercises that work. Um, and many of them you're probably familiar with. Um, the first one is the gratitude visit. So you think of somebody that uh, may have said something or done something in your life and you may be, uh, that made a difference and you never thanked them properly. So you write out a gratitude letter around 300 words and then you deliver it to them. And he says, you not only get to relive the positive emotion in that when writing that gratitude letter and thinking about what happened, um, but you also get to nurture that relationship too with the other person. Um, he says that how do we get lasting change in our life? Is it like our waistline that it might go in and out? And he talks about dieting and all the money people spend on dieting. And then you go back to stage one again, you know. Um, so he says, how do you really bring about lasting change? And I think what he's trying to do in the book is he's trying to say, you know, if you use this kind of acronym of PERMA, if you use all the tools of positive psychology, um, it really can transform your thinking. And it's it's a practice that you put into place um, for your own life. Um, so he says, you know, we have to recognize external circumstances can't change us. We have to change ourselves. Um, he references the um, lotto winners research. 
that they, you know, they found people who won the lotto that, you know, they're really happy for a period of time. And then generally they go back to, you know, um, where, where they were at in their life already. Um, he talks about signature strengths exercises. Um, and I, I do do this with my clients as well. So um, it's uh, via character.org, if you're not familiar with it. So it's the values in action character assessment. So they actually designed this um, when he was um, starting this whole positive psychology movement. And, and it's free for anybody to use. And he says sometimes they'll do research. And I, and I think it's still... Um, it could still be up there in the site. So they, they research different areas at different times. Um, so for example, even right now, I don't think COVID or whatever, you know, it could be up, up on the site. Um, and they use that then towards their, their research for positive psychology. So a few other um, things they talk about, they talk about um, uh, positive psychotherapy and and the different types of tools that you can use in those sessions and again they're very practical and useful for everybody so one exercise is um you you write a paragraph or write an introductory paragraph about you at your best time right so when you were doing your best and i was talking to somebody the other day who's going to be doing um um some work with six class children and i was suggesting this to her because i thought it would be a nice exercise even for children you could just write about a day when you were at your best and and uh you know try to get them to pull out the positives so she said what if they wrote, wrote about um, they were kayaking i said that's great they can um, think about uh, did they persevere to get back to the shore you know and help them pull out the different strengths there um he suggests that um, we focus on satisfiers and not maximizers. Um, and I think this is a huge one for, for people who are high achievers and trying to find like, you know, it's good enough and you don't always have to be striving for everything to be, you know, at, at, at the maximum um, and, and just being satisfied. Uh, forgiveness letter for people who are holding a lot of anger and, and trauma. <laughs> Total maximizer, yeah, me too, Eva. <laughs> um, uh, the gratitude letter I mentioned. So three doors closed. I thought this was really good for at the moment for people who might have lost a job, lost a business or, you know, going through trauma really uh, with everything that's going on. And, you know, if you're, um, I look, you look, it's easy to pick out the three doors closed, but what's the one door that might be open to you? So what might have, um, what opportunity could you take, I suppose, and, and trying to reframe it. Um, he also suggests that aside from your own character strengths, that you identify character strengths of your family. So you could do like a family tree, um, whoever's in your family, and try to help identify the strengths of those. So I thought that was pretty good too. Um, and then the other one is savoring techniques. So I suppose trying to slow down and savor the positive things that happen to us and even reflecting on them and just just slowing down a little bit and just savoring um those good moments so that chapter was really a lot of different of his tools which i think are very very practical very doable um but I, I think you have to put them into practice and you have to stick with them. Um, his chapter three is around drugs and therapy. And he just says that um, depression is the most costly disease in the world. And he quotes, you know, figures from the US and how much money is spent on drugs and therapy um, trying to deal with um, depression for example. And he says, you know, once you stop taking those drugs, then you're back to square one again. So again, it's back to like, how do you, how do you bring that change, I suppose, that continuous change into your life? Um, so another tool that he brings in here, and this was the only thing I found challenging about the book. He kind of goes off on different tangents, uh, but different, so you really had to kind of get your head around, okay, what, what exactly is he talking about here? But, but he brings another tool and it's called active constructive response. So, um, 
you know, when, when you, I suppose, encounter a situation and how you respond to it. So let's say somebody tells you that they've got a new job. Um, actively, constructively responding to it would be actively engaged with the person, showing emotion, and then constructively that, you know, you're asking really positive questions and that's great and tell me about it rather than saying, oh, that sounds like a lot of stress or a lot of, you know, or being passive and, and really not showing much emotion at all. Um, so he says, um, really practicing those, that kind of response technique um, is really good. And he had a whole piece then about... Um, they've identified that how you celebrate with somebody is more indicative of how positive the relationship is than how you fight. Um, and so that's why if you can bring that active constructive tool into practice, then you're really positively responding to somebody all of the time. Um, and that would be indicative of a, of a good relationship. Um, he said, uh, and you know, if you do any courses in positive psychology now, they'll say, you know, positive psychology initially was very much focused on all the, the good stuff and trying to bring out the good stuff. And it still is, but it's it's now there's real recognition that you have to be able to deal with um, with negative emotions as well. So he says it's not just about putting the happy face over things. Um, it's about dealing with the negative emotions. So he shares um, two interesting stories that I thought were, were good. One is about how they train snipers and the other is how they train fighter pilots. So um, snipers generally will need to be... Um, they're, they're about 24 hours getting into position before they take a shot. And then they could be another 36 hours before they actually take the shot. So by the time they take that shot, which requires total precision, they're totally exhausted. So the way they train these snipers is they continually put them into these situations where they're absolutely exhausted. Um, and he says it's the same for fighter pilots. They literally have them in the plane until they're about to hit the ground and then they and then they go up again. Um, so it's it's putting ourselves, I suppose, into situations where, you know, dealing with uncertainty, learning to be uncomfortable and learning to work through that rather than trying to say everything has to be happy and and avoid the difficult um situations. Um, so his chapter four then talks about the um, development of the Masters in Applied Positive Psychology, which is what they run out in University um, of Pennsylvania. And if you follow any of, of, I suppose, the students and teachers in that program online, you'll recognize the names like John Gottman, Barb Fredrickson, Caroline Adams Miller, I think is another one. Um, so they're, you know, they're all on LinkedIn and you can follow their stuff. Um, but he talked about um, Barb Fredrickson's work with companies. And what they did was they actually uh, transcribed every meeting in companies over a certain period of time. And they measured it for positivity versus negativity. And what they said was you need, they called it a Lasado ratio, and you needed 2.9 to 1 positive to negative Lasado ratio for a company to be flourishing. Um, now, I did a course in positive psychology in UCC and he disputed that and said that wasn't um, accurate any longer, but that, that's what's in the book anyway. And he says you need a 2.9 to 1 um, Lasado rating. Um, and he also mentions um, uh, sports teams and I have a 17 year old who likes to um, gamble a little bit on sports teams. So I was telling him this story that if you what they did was they they transcribed all of the comments from sports coaches. And what they found was the more optimistic the sports coach, the more successful the team. So I suppose he's trying to get across, you know, the power in our language, really, and using positive language. Um, 
and as I was reading it, I was thinking about social media and, you know, and, and the type of sort of comments that you see on it sometimes. And he actually talks about the power of social media um, in promoting well-being later on as well. Um, and just, I suppose, reframing our language all the time, you know, to be to be aware and really um, uh, positive focused. So then he brings in John Gottman again, who's done um, work on uh, relationships and marriage. And according to them, you need a five, um, five to one positive to negative ratio in order to have a, um, a good marriage. I think if, if you're at a 2.9 to one, you're heading towards divorce. If you're at a one to three, you're just, it's just a disaster basically. So, but I think, you know, we can just take the message that the more, the more positive, the better. Um, he tells a story about the um, assistant to the CEO of PricewaterhouseCoopers who came over and trained with them and learned about positive psychology and wanted to bring all those tools and techniques back to um, to PricewaterhouseCoopers. And so they've, they've been trying to do that and trying to build up their own Lasado ratio as well in just creating um, a more positive, I suppose, work environment. Um, he also talks about appreciative inquiry, which is, you know, when you respond, I suppose, positively to somebody and you build on, on what they say rather than trying to contradict somebody, um, which is what we have a tendency to do um, sometimes. Um, he also talks about, um, and this is Caroline Adams Miller, actually, uh, goal setting theory and happiness. Um, you know, it's the idea that we think we will be happy when we have whatever. Um, but her research shows very clearly that happier people are more likely to reach their goals. So it goes back to the kind of well-being theory, I suppose, at the start that, you know, if you focus on your well-being and, and focus on, on that aspect of it, you're actually more likely then to reach your goals and, and to, to achieve what you want um, to achieve. So he goes on then to chapter five and he talks about um, teaching well-being to young people. Um, and I think this is really, really important. And he says that depression um, is 10 times higher in young people than it was, I, I think, 50 years ago is what he says. Um, and he says, you know, teaching about well-being skills is not just good for the individual, uh, but it actually improves creativity. Um, it broadens um, their attention span um, and, you know, so has lots of educational benefits um, as well, um, aside from just the individual. So he talks about going out um, to Australia. He was asked to go to Geelong Grammar School, um, which seemingly is where Prince Charles would have spent um, some time as well. And th what they did was they, they, brought positive psychology to absolutely every aspect of that school. So when the English teacher is teaching about King Lear, they're looking for character strengths of the characters within King Lear. Um, the art teacher is teaching appreciation um, of beauty. In geography, they don't learn about droughts and famines and they learn about um, what countries are happiness, happiest in the world or they learn about well-being in different countries um, or, you know, it, it all has a positive sort of um, a spin on it, I suppose. And what he says was that helped them to develop um, a common language. So everybody was sort of working from, from the same base and the same um, language. They also taught them about the ABC theory. So, you know, it, it's not what happens to us as in the adversity. Um, it's, it's really our beliefs. So B for beliefs. So, you know, if we can change our beliefs about what happens um, to us, um, that can help change the, the consequence. And I just thought, you know, how powerful for young people to be able to learn 
those skills. And so no matter what happens to you, you know, if you if you can, I suppose, find inner control yourself, um, it's really empowering. Um, this is actually where he brings in then about uh, Facebook. Um, and again, this is 2011. So Facebook was probably the primary one back then. Um, but they did some research on terms used on Facebook and what was going out, going on in the world. So they um, used laid, uh, laid off and they searched for the, you know, the amount of times that laid off was used on Facebook and then the amount of layoffs that were happening around the world. And they found that there was uh, a lot of similarities between the two. Um, so again, I suppose just the power of of language used on social media and how that um, I suppose tells the story of what's going on in our world. Um, and I just saw somebody on Facebook last night. His daughter had set up a kindness club, and so he said everything that he posts from now to the end of the year on Facebook uh, will be around the area of kindness. So you know, it's interesting to just think that um, I suppose the power that that it could have. So in chapter six, then he looks at, um, he calls it the ways to flourish, but really I, I think all of the previous tools are relevant for that as well. But he talks about um, grit. And if you've read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, um, she actually applied for that master's in applied positive psychology and she got it. And the reason she he said that she got in is because in her application letter, she um, suggested that students who don't do well in school, that really it's their own personal responsibility. And he said that, you know, we often blame their background, conditions, the school, whatever. So he said it was really enlightening to see somebody saying, wow, these students have to take personal responsibility. So when he's talking about grit, he's talking about, um, I suppose, ownership and and this idea of, of being responsible and that you have a free will to control, right, what happens to you. Um, and he gives a formula for achievement and he says achievement equals uh, skill multiplied by effort. So, and I was thinking of um, Neve and the book that we did two weeks ago, Creating Space, because Neve is all about productivity. So he talks about, when he talks about skill, he talks about we need to speed up part of what we do. So you speed up the pieces that you can do pretty easily, and then you slow down for the parts like decision-making, planning functions, whatever. Um, so I thought that fit in nicely because, um, you know, Nia's work is all about, uh, I suppose, po- productivity and increasing efficiency in certain areas. But then her book was about creating space, which was for slowing down and in terms of making decisions and the bigger picture sort of stuff. Um, so he kind of brought that in in there as well. But it's it's so achievement equals skill multiplied by effort. So it, it's how much effort and it's taking the responsibility for how much effort you put into things um, to make things happen. Um, and yes. Oh, yes. Chapter seven. So he talks about the army, actually. So he goes on to talk about the army um, and um uh, globally and, and politics and how well-being can come into that. So I thought the piece on the army was actually really interesting. Um, and the army approached him and wanted to bring positive psychology um, tools into the US army. So they wanted um, their soldiers to be um, psychologically fit and not just physically fit, um, because obviously soldiers that go into combat and come back from combat, huge issues with uh, post-traumatic stress um, disorder, um, and really just very hard for them to function both when they're out there and uh, when they go home. So they 
did, um, they designed um, a global assessment tool. And so they basically assessed every single member of the U.S. Army and they then assigned them to training. So depending on, on their results, um, they'd either go with the basic training or the advanced training. And that training then um, was continuous, but it would include modules. Um, the four modules would be um, emotional, uh, social, spiritual and family. Um, so the family one was interesting because he said that the cohort of soldiers that were in the U.S. Army, this was 2011 again, were the first ones to have Wi-Fi. So they were the first ones to actually be in contact with home while they were out in these combat environments. So, you know, they were still parenting kids. They were in relationships. Um, they were dealing with issues at home. And then they were carrying all of that, you know, back literally onto the battlefield. So they did an awful lot of work about um, developing trust. Um, they gave them one exercise, which was, um, I suppose, to, to try not to, um, I think it was called best, um, oh, putting things, oh, simply putting things in perspective. So it was like um, best case, worst case, most likely case. And so we gave the example of a soldier who can't uh, reach um, his spouse or her spouse or whatever. And, you know, when you're out there, if you can't reach your spouse for a while, you might think worst case scenario, you know, they've left me, they've gone off and had an affair. Best case, they're so lonely over me, they're talking to their friends about me. And most likely, they're probably gone out for a carton of milk, you know. So trying to help the individuals, I suppose, to to put things in perspective, to step back from all these different situations um, and then just learning to parent from afar and um, dealing with isolation. So then they had a social module and they said loneliness is actually a huge issue in the U.S. Army, because even though you're you're among all these people for a long time um learning how to build positive and constructive um, relationships um, was actually harder than you think. Um, they, they brought in the spiritual module because they wanted their soldiers to have, um, I suppose, to answer to a higher purpose and um, so that morals and values would be really important to them. And it gives an example of um, a massacre that happened. I, I forget where it was, but um, it, it was really an appalling massacre and two um, generals were were involved in it and just stood by and let it happen and nobody spoke up about it so they felt that the spiritual uh, piece was was very very important um and then the emotional as well so some of the tools that were mentioned earlier like in terms of being able to step back and manage your reactions and actively constructively respond um to people um he also talked about post-traumatic growth so he said um, in West Point, West Point cadets, 90% of them know about post-traumatic stress disorder, but only 10% of them know about post-traumatic growth. And what they have found is that when people go through um, traumatic events and strengths, that it actually builds resilience and that they're actually much stronger because of it when they come out. So trying when, when soldiers, you know, go back and, and they feel they have post-traumatic stress disorder, that it doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy, that they don't feel, well, I'm doomed and that's it now and I need, need my education and whatever, but trying to help them reframe it to say that, you know, I'm actually stronger because of this um, and, to, and to support them going through it. Um, so creating a new narrative really is what he's saying around that um, post-traumatic um, issues. And he says that happiness is contagious. 
um, and you know they have proven that it leads to optimal performance. So it's not just about well-being. I suppose there's another uh, goal as well in terms of of success and failure, and particularly in a, in an army and combat situation. Obviously, that's really really important. Um, so his second last chapter is to do with the biology of optimism. So they looked at cardiovascular diseases, they looked at infectious diseases, and they looked at um, cancer. Um, The cancer research seemed to um, be unclear at the moment, but um, the cardiovascular disease, like they, over a period of eight to 10 years, they had a cohort of Uh, people who had cardiovascular disease and they measured them for their levels of optimism and pessimism and at the end of I think it was eight years um, the the number of people who died in the pessimistic category far outweighed the people who were optimistic Um, and, and they ran a number of studies like that over over many many years and so he wasn't suggesting that optimism could prevent but it can certainly help to deal um, with cardiovascular disease. So they then did a study on infectious diseases, which going through a pandemic right now was kind of interesting because what they did was they um, infected people with rhinovirus, which is just the typical cold, kept them in quarantine for six days, and then they measured to see um, who who was most likely to get a cold and whose cold lasted the longest. Um, and the way they measured it was... Um, based on the mucus production. So they basically, they weighed the snotty tissues, is what he said in the book. Um, And they found that the people who experienced the most positive emotions had the shortest colds and were less likely to have a cold. And the way they were able to measure it was uh, for a protein, interleukin-6, I think it was called. So when you experience positive emotions, you produce this particular protein and that's how they were able to assess it. So I thought that was very interesting. and as I say, the cancer, the cancer research was was the the verdict was kind of out. Um, he talks a lot then about learned helplessness and experiments that they had done on rats back in the 1960s. And so when people, well, in that case, it was the rats, but then the later with people, you know, when people feel that they have no escape, they kind of become helpless um, and take on the victim mentality, I suppose. So he had done that research back in the 60s, but now that he was working in positive psychology, he said, you know, why can't we have learned optimism? And why isn't it something that we can just develop? And he said that um, having hope was was a really important part of that. So helping people to see uh, hope through what they're going and then they can learn to be um, optimistic. Um, And then his last um, uh, piece is about um, kind of globally. And he talks about, you know, how over the past 50 years, everything has increased except for well-being. So our house size, um, number of cars, the amount of clothes we have, just absolutely everything, our income levels have increased. Uh, but well-being has not increased. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, rates of depression have, have risen tenfold. So he says that in countries um, where GDP is very prosperous, um, it's less related to well-being. So in a country where where things are, you know, we have a good standard of living and all our basics are taken care of, um, it's less linked to our well-being, right? So well-being tends to kind of drop down. But in countries where GDP is lower, and I suppose they're still struggling to get basics, food, housing, whatever, um, their well-being seems to improve when when those factors are 
are satisfied, if, if that kind of makes sense. Um, and it, he ends the book really with saying that, you know, we all have an individual responsibility to promote our own well-being. Um, but then we also have the responsibility to promote the well-being of of other people around us and just how how it could lift the whole world, I suppose, that if everybody took on that responsibility. And he mentions that they wrote this, he was writing this book in 2010. He said, you know, it wasn't long after the financial crash. And in the University of Pennsylvania, they had the Wharton School of Business. And, and he said, you know, we're we're sending out the financiers of the world and and a lot of them have huge responsibility for the big corporations and so they were trying to figure out whether you know should they be teaching more classes and ethics and values and how are we going to get people responsible in the business world um, and he says really it's as simple as well-being and that if each and every person took that responsibility um, and then if our goal in business wasn't just profit, but it was profit and PERMA, he says, which is, you know, the acronym for well-being, um, that, that the world would, would be a different place. And um, he can, I think his last line is something like, um, let's say yes to well-being, you know. Um, so that was kind of a, a whistle stop tour of of positive psychology. But as I say, like there's there's loads of nuggets in it. I definitely found it um transformative reading it the second time round and and definitely makes me, I suppose, more aware in terms of my own well-being, how to measure it and that of others. And and I just think it it breaks it down. Actually, that was the other thing he said. He said, um, you know, well-being is like the weather, it's a construct. And so weather is, isn't a thing in itself, but when you break it down into the rain and the wind and you can measure the different components, um, then you can do something about it or you can, you know, it helps you to understand it. So he says, well-being is like that, you can measure it. And if if we want public policy and anything to change at governmental level, um, we have to be able to measure it or, or it's not going to be changed. Um, and he talks about um, there is a UK government minister uh, responsible for positive psychology, I think, in education. Um, and I know, I, I think it is that New Zealand has a, um, a happiness um, minister or something like that, or I think a few countries have been trying to bring that in as well. So um, it's, it's you know, slowly, I suppose, permeating business and policy and whatever. So, um, yeah, so that's it. So I'm happy to answer any questions if I can, but that was... Uh, <laughs> No, that was magic, Eva. Thanks a million. Um, some really good stuff there. Like it's 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 kind of enlightening. Like you know, everybody talks about happiness and chasing happiness. Yet there's a couple of like really simple exercises backed by research that proves that can can help your your happiness or your well being. My own curiosity is like, why do you think people are maybe you know have a bit of uh, an, an, an aversion? to maybe stepping into using these techniques and to embracing positive psychology because I think in the wider sphere, positive psychology still has a bit of a, maybe a bit of a bad rep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually he says as well, he says coaching because coaching still sometimes some people think it's a bit, you know, he says it lacks the scientific evidence. So he says when you combine coaching with positive psychology, that positive psychology is actually the backbone that coaching needs is what he says. Um, yeah. So, so, so why are some people, is it because we have to, to step back and take the time and it's a little bit uncomfortable maybe, and it goes back to that responsibility. Is it a bit easier to blame yeah. outside circumstances? 
you know, sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. Like, I mean, it's something that's staring us in the face. Here's something that practically and yeah. scientifically improves your happiness. Yes, we, we won't go near it. We won't, we won't embrace it. Yeah. Like if we, if we could say, right, my positive motion today is a five. So then what am I going to do to bring it up to a seven tomorrow, you know, and take that responsibility to do it. Yeah. Really good. Anybody else have any comments just on the. Yeah, I do. And it's, it's not necessarily a question for you, Aoife. It's more maybe discussion for the floor, but what you said about how we've increased in all areas of life, we're earning more money you know, bigger houses, bigger TVs, all that kind of stuff. And yet our well-being is still maybe at the same level or slightly lower than what it has been before. And I'd love to get a discussion going on what people think. And I know I'm definitely prone to this. Like, you know, it's greed and it's keeping up with the Joneses and you see these things and you think that you want them. And it's more about, um, less about experiences, more about the things that you can acquire and that sort of stuff. So I just wanted to start a discussion about that and see what people think. Yeah, and I can actually, um, I suppose, comment on that too because he said, um, um, I, I think the US and Britain are, are less satisfied. There's a few other countries that are very dissatisfied, and Russia is extremely dissatisfied. So I actually looked up the happiness index, see where Ireland is. So we're 19th in the world in terms of happy countries. Yeah. And, and the UK and the US are kind of similar. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone have any thoughts on, like, I suppose, how to address it, what to do? Because it is, you know, you want, people want more cars, they want more, better cars, they want bigger TVs, they want nicer holidays, all of this kind of stuff. And where, where is it getting us? Yeah, from, from my perspective, Eva, I think it's a great question. I, th- I think we were, we were all kind of forced to slow down with the lockdown. Mm the way Aoife was describing PERMA there, that's actually what got us through it. Like, we had to create our own positive emotions. We had to find things that would engage us. Like, relationships became more and more important. Trying to find a bit of meaning and purpose throughout the day. And then accomplishments. So I'd say there was never more garden sheds painted in those couple of months than, than ever before. So, so we, we, we kind of had a glimpse into well, what does a life through PERMA actually look like? Um. But I think you can see now, certainly in the last couple of weeks, that there's been this real sort of uh, race to get back to way, the way things were. And uh, I think that's kind of classic conditioning, isn't it? That we're, we're okay to try something for six to eight weeks, but then we'll snap back to where we were before. Um, and it is exactly that, Aoife. It's, it's, it's back onto the treadmill, back onto keeping up with the Joneses, um, going after the things that we think will make us happy rather than things actually that, you know, as Aoife described there, that happiness is the, the inside job. So it's, it's a really interesting dichotomy that people think they'll be happy when they achieve rather than focusing inwards. And maybe and it's it um, comfort. Is it slightly exacerbated then by the likes of social media? So you see what other people are doing, or at least other people are putting up their highlight reel of like, this is how fantastic my life is when it's like, one or two minutes, if even, out of their entire day when they could have been miserable all day or they're just trying to boast about what it is that they have or whatever it might be. I don't know. Yeah. Welcome. Any any input to that? I don't know about the social media part of things, Aoife. I know that there's a lot of research out there saying social media plays a part in that, but I think a lot of it has to do with 
a working environment. I just think that demands on employees before lockdown, during lockdown, now after lockdown is huge. And it's not even necessarily the people who are ambitious and want the the bigger jobs. I just honestly, I think there's a huge amount of pressure on lots of people at the moment and all the time in, from corporations and from management structure. And even though that is giving us the materialistic goods um, in terms of the cars and the big TVs, the offside of that is that um, the demands that's being made on us in a work environment. I think I think you make a good point, and I know of a few people as well. And working in HR, and they're just absolute. They're doing twelve-hour days since March, and and really, yeah, you'd wonder what, what's it all for, you know. Um, and I think the organisations. I talked to somebody today, actually, who's just she was been with a big multinational for many years, and she left because they were a moving country. And uh, she said it was amazing. She's like she realised she was just a little pawn, and just you know. She was like, they were closing out her email. They were just showing her out the door after all the years, you know. So it's, yeah, I think. Um, and I mentioned Price Waterhouse Coopers actually, and I'd love to. I didn't get a chance, but I will go back and look and see. Like, they were trying to bring in this whole positive psychology initiative into Price Waterhouse. So I wonder if they did succeed. And if if anything has changed or or if any companies have really adopted this, um, he says that things that worked in the army usually do go into mainstream and they go into business. Um, so I don't know, you know, um, actually, um, Tony Heisch, I think I'm saying that right. The CEO of Zappos. Has anybody read that book, Delivering Happiness? That's that's a great book too, and that's an easy read. That would have been easier to do actually for the whole globe, <laughs> in hindsight. Um, but um, and he talks about how he created the culture in his company. So he actually has he's written the review here on the front. Um, so like that's a good example of a company that um, that really uses it. And actually, I think it's it's Zappos. Um, once you go through the induction period, they actually offer you. A number of thousand dollars, yeah. if you think, is that Zappos? Yeah. yeah, to leave, yeah, dollars or something, something like that. Two or three months, and they say if you don't fit in here, yeah. it's like five thousand dollars, and yeah, leave. yeah, yeah, um, because it's it's not worth their time to have people who don't fit in with the culture yeah. to stay on in the business and cost them money through training and whatever else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, amazing approach. Um, and a couple of thoughts. Somebody said to me very, very recently, he was talking about um, a colleague, former friend of his, or, sorry, a former colleague and current friend mm-hmm. um, who runs a business now that he's retired. Um, and he works, oh, he said he works about 35 hours a week. It's a part-time job. And I kind of looked at him and I said, 35 hours a week is not, it's not a part-time job. And the person I was talking to said, well, I normally work 70, so 35 hours a week is, is part-time to me. <laughs> and and I, I'm looking at him going, you're setting policy. Like, you're a HR senior, senior HR leader, and you're saying that 70 hours a week is normal. That, uh, or you know, acceptable. 
well, and the only thing left is not acceptable. Exactly. Um, the other thing that occurred to me, anybody ever read um, Jeffrey Bird? Um, he, he, he wrote a couple of books with um, Peter Pfeffer. Um, but the most interesting quote that I've ever read, and I think it's, it's so applicable to this, he's, when he's talking about empowerment, he defines empowerment badly implemented as the co-opted repression of dissent. So essentially that if you want to, uh, if you want to reduce the amount of complaints and the amount of problems that people have within your organization, tell them they're empowered and tell them to go fix it themselves. And it's a very, yes, it's, Annie says that sometimes when he goes into companies as a consultant, that that's what he's finding. He's finding that people are being told they have the power when they don't. And that therefore empowerment is the co-opted repression of dissent. And I can't help but feel that in companies that would be run like somebody, you know, by somebody who thinks that 70 hours a week is normal, the positive psychology has exactly the same potential. Mm. I've given you the tools to be happy, fire on ahead. Why are you not happy working 80 hours a week? Mm. You know, so I've been... Yeah. I'd be quite wary about it from that point of view, I have to say. Well, I mean, yeah. my thoughts on that, 70 hours a week, it, it, that's crazy. Yeah. And it's, isn't it the law of diminishing returns? Like once you go above 35 hours or something, like you're not really adding that much value to the organization. Oh, completely. If completely. he's a very senior person, then he should be leading by example and showing people how to be more efficient or how to, how to get their work done in a normal Working hours, basically. Yeah. 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 Instead, he's um, sitting in his glass office, looking out at people who don't, who can't leave because he's still there. Presenteeism. There we go. <laughs> so I, work expands fit the time allowed. Yes. It can be cultural because I know, like in, in in Scandinavian countries, that working late is actually deemed as a negative. It, it, it's developmental. Like, are, are you okay? Is there, is there something that you're not getting? Like, yeah. <laughs> are you in your path five? So yeah. it's really interesting. It is that cultural piece that, that infiltrates, and it's obviously country by country, but company by company as well. And it's, it's kind of that cultural thing of what's rewarded here. So is it sitting at your desk, doing your online yeah. shopping, reading the paper and staying till eight o'clock? And, and is that seen as being productive? So it's, it's whatever. I think it is. Yeah, it's interesting. I think to Aoife's point, it's really up to the company to set the tone and the leaders need to set the tone. Um, and then people who are coaches, people who work in HR need to show the research that's been done around the cost that our lack of well-being is having um, with stress and illnesses, etc. So it, there is costs to businesses. I'm not sure they're they're listening to that data to the extent that we certainly would like them to. Um, but I think it's up to us to really influence that as much as we can and then leadership to set the tone. I've heard of some managers, um, you can create um, email time when you want your emails to go out and they've started to do that so that they're not sending out emails at, at any time after five o'clock just to show their employees that, you know, 
we switch off at five o'clock and they have them go out then at nine o'clock the next morning. And I just thought that was a really practical um, and positive way for a leader to show their team what is normal in our company, which is culture shaping. And that's what's so important. Yeah. Especially in work from home environments where you can't actually see what time people are working at. Exactly. You know, so it's, per, it's, it's, it's entirely reasonable to have flexibility. But if I'm the most senior person and my flexibility includes that I don't work in the afternoon, I work in the evening, and I then I'm getting annoyed because I'm not getting an answer to my email at 9 p.m. Mm. That's a really bad, that's a really bad thing. And I think that that having those timed emails is, is a much, much cleverer approach to that. Yeah. It's funny though, like, I mean, we're all probably that people-centered focus and approach, but if you bring in somebody else here now who just commercial money, bottom line, got to get it done they i have no doubt that there would be a robust debate as to say look we've no time for this flourishing stuff we've no time for this <laughs> absolutely as, there's yeah. work to get done and we need to do it and and they'll be completely immovable in that in that view so like mm. it's, it's the there's always going to be a tension between people versus profit really I, yeah i totally agree with what you're saying declan I totally agree. There are those people who focus very much on the money and the profit. Now, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell did an experiment over a good number of years where he looked at investing in companies that were people focused um, versus the general what's it, versus the general stock exchange or something like that. Yeah. And the companies who focused on their people and putting people first and creating better cultures and work environments. Um, outperformed the, the general stock market by a, a, great, a good factor. And I don't know off the top of my head what it was, but he did look at that. So there are kind of, there are stats that say it is worth investing in, in people, but I totally get what you mean. There's some people who just wouldn't even entertain that thought. Like, you know, you should be working your 80 hours a week and what are we paying you for and all that kind of shit. That's where analytics come in. And that's yes. where all businesses, but especially the world of HR, has to move towards analytics yeah. and proving the worth, um, as Sarah said. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, think one of the, I think one of the issues is that an awful lot of that commercial piece is being driven by tasks rather than skill or knowledge or intellectual property or anything else. So if you if you have somebody testing COVID samples in a lab and they're working 80 hours a week, they're going to get through twice as many samples as somebody working 40 hours a week. Mm. Because it's, you know, it's absolutely mechanical what they're doing. And I think an awful lot of the commercial stuff is it's almost back to that really old-fashioned piece rate kind of thing that the longer people are working the more that they're actually achieving so when we're talking about analytics i think we need to be really careful of what we're actually describing and how we're saying it will matter yeah that's a great point Mara. great point yeah because i've i've had this debate about the four day the four day week and how yeah. to how to transition over to a four day week but you make an absolutely Valid point, and there are other other um, roles, other role types where, like you say, the longer you're working, or like for customer service roles, for being available, 
um, for sales roles where it's it's based around volume rather than um, kind of inherent skill or knowledge and, and that sort of thing. Um, we could probably debate that all night. Yeah. And it goes back to the question then, you know, do we all have a responsibility then as a society to, you know, mind each other, I suppose. But But I know that argument over profit versus that fluffy stuff, you know, will be... Well, I, <laughs> hard I to fight Aoife does, does that go back to what you were saying about taking personal responsibility now I've had so many conversations in my life where people are miserable in their jobs but they're not doing anything about it yeah you no know, like I, I was miserable in my job and I left yeah I took personal responsibility and I got out of there and that's that's more than once you know and I didn't have anything else to go to necessarily but there's so many other people who are saying, oh, no, sure, it's grand. Oh, no, sure, I'll just wait an, a little while. Or, oh, no, yes. well, you know, they're just stuck in their own misery, basically. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and that's really it. And and even if your boss is in the office and not leaving, and that's the culture and the standard there, if you take the personal responsibility and you say, well, I know I've done my 100% here, I've done my work, so mm. my well-being's important, so I'm, you know. Um, but I know that's not always... It's easy to it's do. Not. I think. I think people. I think it also depends on people's responsibilities. I mean, you know, where I live. Um, if I was working where I lived, and I had responsibilities and a mortgage and a car loan, mm. there's, there's very little other employment opportunities. If I was to leave, I could be unemployed for a very long time. Mm. You know, so it's it's people's circumstances, um, inertia. Um, all of these things combine together mm. to to keep people in their misery. So I think that for me that that comes back to a different aspect of positive psychology, which is looking at the misery that you're in. You'll only ever see the misery. Whereas if you look at you know you actually do the pros and cons, why you're staying, where you're staying, what you're getting out of it, then it might change how you're looking at your misery. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so personal responsibility doesn't mean you have to leave the job, no. but you do what you can to change the situation. Yeah. Or even just look at it differently. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm doing this job. I don't like it. I don't like my boss, but yeah. it's 10 minutes from home. I get enough to pay my mortgage. I can leave at six o'clock and get home and I can pick up my kids. I can do all of this stuff. Yeah. So therefore, let me stick a smile on my face and go in in the morning and just do what I need to do in order to have all of the advantages that I'm having. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's, you know, it's about changing our focus a little bit. It's not necessarily about changing the situation that we're in. Yeah. If I really loved your summary, thank you. I'd say you put a lot of work into today. <laughs> like I said, halfway through, I was like, oh, my God, what have I taken on? <laughs> um, there was so much like that jumped out at me. And um, but one thing that I hadn't really thought of that really jumped out at me was the um, the, the people who come back from war and they have post-traumatic stress. Rather, and, and you're, I, I forget the stat you gave, but we all, we're all very familiar with that. We mm. all think of the post-traumatic stress. Mm. But actually, if you change that thinking to thinking about, well, I, what did I learn? My resilience, mm. I survived. Mm. That's very powerful. And I know the common theme was about training your thoughts. Mm. But that's, uh, that's one of the most powerful things I'm taking away from this evening, that just yes. that thought process, because it's so 
mainstream about people suffering from post-traumatic stress. Mm. What about if you try switched your thinking there? How powerful that yeah. would be? Exactly. And actually, I read Vicky Phelan's novel not too long ago, and I didn't realize she had had so many other challenges in her life before mm. getting cervical cancer and the fight that she took on and everything. But but I was thinking of her as I was reading, I was like, wow, I wonder if that all built up a resilience in her so that she was able to cope and oh, able yeah, to yeah. take on what she took on, you know, so it's interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, you see, um, particularly people involved in social activism as a result of personal trauma that they themselves have suffered, you know, whether it's child sexual abuse or rape or sexual assault or whatever. And they're doing the most incredible activism on behalf of other victims and the strength it must take to do that yeah. and the resilience as a result of it is a really, you know, I, I see a direct link between that post-traumatic stress and the post-traumatic growth yeah. that they have within themselves to give to other people. That's, you know, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Just to the hour now, so Aoife, that was absolutely magic. I suppose my own selfish reason for, for being involved in this is to try to take one thing from every single book and to, and to apply it over the next week. So, you know, I'm going to look at some of those um, practical applications, some of those exercises, and even just try to experience them for myself, I think, over the next two weeks. So, Aoife, I'll, I'll definitely report back and see. Great. <laughs> Thanks a million for, for the, uh, the rundown. We do have a space open in two weeks time if anybody wants to put their hand up don't need to do it here now but if you want to contact myself and Rob we'll, we'll get going again but uh, loved the review loved the debate afterwards and uh, thanks again for everybody for, for signing up uh, thanks so we'll guys in two weeks thanks Sifa that was great thanks Sifa thanks Declan thanks Sifa thank you thank you bye everyone <laughs> bye 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 bye